The head of a Massachusetts business group says employers should not have to pay for a multi-billion dollar mistake by the state regarding unemployment benefits. They're sitting on the rainy day fund. I think Beacon Hill needs to pay off this debt. It's Friday, June 2nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. U.S. employers added 339,000 jobs last month, far more than forecasters had expected. Also, subscribers dislike the Netflix move to roll back password sharing, but some experts say it's a good business decision. What they have to be worried about is a challenging ad market, the decline of pay TV, the rising cost of sports, and a writer's strike. And you'll get the story on New Orleans Resilience Hubs. It's 401. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden is expected to address the nation tonight about just how close it came to defaulting on its financial obligations, which would have had global repercussions. That outcome's been averted, though, with Congress's approval of a bipartisan bill that lifts the debt ceiling. The White House says the president is expected to sign the legislation as soon as tomorrow. Here's NPR's Franco Ordonez. President Biden has another win to notch after the Senate followed the House and passed legislation that cuts federal spending as well as suspends the debt ceiling until after the 2024 election. The bipartisan deal comes just days before the Treasury Secretary had warned that the government would run out of money to pay its bills. It also ends months of tensions in Washington after Republicans refused to raise the debt limit unless Biden and the Democrats place more restrictions on federal spending. The president tweeted after the Senate vote that no one gets everything they want in a negotiation, but that senators voted to protect hard-earned economic progress. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. One of the three major rating agencies says the United States AAA credit rating is still at risk despite the latest debt limit deal. NPR's David Gura reports Fitch Rating says it's still concerned about rising deficits and political polarization. Once again, the U.S. government has managed to avoid a default, but Fitch Ratings says it plans to, quote, consider the full implications of the most current brinksmanship episode in the months to come. In May, the agency warned the U.S. it was reevaluating its long-held AAA rating. Fitch says political standoffs around the debt limit affect confidence in the U.S., and it plans to assess the coherence and credibility of policymaking. It also plans to look closely at the trajectory of U.S. debt. After the announcement, yields on U.S. government bonds edged higher. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The Labor Department reports the U.S. economy gained 339,000 jobs last month. The unemployment raise, rate rose to 3.7 percent. Washington's prepared to talk to Moscow without conditions about a nuclear arms control framework after Russia decided to spend its involvement in the last remaining nuclear arms treaty it had with the U.S. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan delivered a speech today at the Arms Control Association's annual meeting. He said the country stands at an inflection point in the U.S.'s nuclear stability and security that demands new strategies to reduce the risk of nuclear conflict. Earlier this year, President Putin unlawfully suspended Russia's implementation of the New START Treaty that places limits on the most destructive weapons in our arsenals, the kinds that could destroy the world many times over. Only a month later, President Putin began to take steps to station tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus. Russia made the move as tensions increased following its invasion of Ukraine last year. It's NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The head of a Massachusetts business group says there's no way employers should have to pay for a multi-billion dollar mistake by the state. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports. In 2020, Massachusetts used $2.5 billion in federal pandemic relief money to pay for unemployment benefits. It turns out state funds should have been used to pay those claims. John Hurst is president of the Retailers Association of Massachusetts. He says the state already has the ability to pay the federal government back, including leftover money from the American Rescue Plan Act and other funds. Leftover money from last year's fiscal year is sitting on the rainy day fund. You know, this is a one-time investment. I think Beacon Hill needs to pay off this debt. The state's costly error was uncovered in an audit and made public this week. The state Labor Department has been under scrutiny for years for its loose financial controls. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. Massachusetts Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey are explaining why they voted against the debt ceiling bill that passed the Senate. Markey objects to the cuts in social service programs. Warren is critical of the rollback of student debt relief. A majority of the Massachusetts House delegation voted in favor of the debt ceiling legislation on Wednesday. Tonight at 7, WBUR will bring you President Biden's national address on the debt ceiling compromise. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts is easing some of its rules for members affected by this week's closure of Compass Medical Practices. The insurer says it is easing referral and authorization requirements for customers who were seeing Compass doctors. Quincy-based Compass Medical announced Wednesday it was immediately closing all six of its Massachusetts offices. The expected bad weather later today is postponing the demolition of a bridge in Taunton. Drivers were bracing for traffic overnight detours and backups around the Route 24 bridge project. The Department of Transportation has not set a new date on when the bridge will be taken down. Tonight at Fenway, the Red Sox host the Rays. It's 74 degrees in Boston, a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight. Tomorrow, a chance of showers, Saturday's highs in the mid-50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Indeed a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. In a little bit, we'll hear about why it may be time to notify your mother or your brother or your ex that Netflix is going to put an end to sharing passwords. But first, news about the U.S. jobs market. This morning, we learned that employers added 339,000 jobs last month, and revised figures show hiring in March and April was also stronger than had been reported. That is good news for anyone who's looking for work, but the strength of the job market could also complicate the Federal Reserve's effort to bring down inflation. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Hi, Scott. Hi, Juana. All right, Scott, employers' appetite for workers just continues to defy expectations month after month. Where are all of these new jobs coming from? Yeah, pretty much across the board. Uh, we had lots of jobs last month in healthcare and business services and bars and restaurants. Even construction companies are hiring, even the, despite the high interest rates, which have really weighed on the housing market. You know, just about every month, forecasters think we're going to see a slowdown in hiring, and then the number comes out and they just shake their heads. Ryan Sweet is chief U.S. economist at Oxford Economics. The labor market's red hot, and you know, heading into the summer, you know, there's no indication that it was cooling off. By almost every metric that you look at when you're assessing the health of the labor market, it is strong. It's rock solid. 
Just about the only industries that lost workers last month were manufacturing, where we saw a small decline, and information, which is a catch-all category that includes software firms and media companies. Overall, though, the jobs engine just keeps chugging along. And Scott, are employers able to find the workers that they need? It certainly seems like it. You're not hearing the kind of widespread complaints about worker shortages that you used to. Uh, Payrolls in most industries are now at least back to where they were before the pandemic, so there's not the mad scramble there was when everybody was trying to staff up at once. We're also seeing more workers coming off the sidelines and joining the labor force. Uh, That's especially true for people in their prime working years, 25 to 54. The share of people in that age group who are now working or looking for work is the highest it's been since 2007. And for women in that age group, it's the highest ever. Uh, That's a real turnaround from the depths of the pandemic when a lot of women left the workforce and there were concerns they might not come back. They are coming back. And Sweet thinks the ranks of working women is going to continue to grow. We have a a large pipeline of of women that are going to enter the labor force because if you look at the, the share of women versus men that you know, or attending college, you know, that would argue that we're going to see more and more women coming into the labor force going forward. And I think that's a very good sign for the broader economy. We've also seen a rebound in immigration, which had largely dried up during the pandemic, and that's another important source of workers. As good as all of that sounds, we should also point out that the unemployment rate did tick up last month. What should we make of that? Yeah, the unemployment rate had been just 3.4 percent, matching uh, the lowest it's been in half a century. And last month, it crept up to 3.7 percent. Now, that's still very low by historical standards, but it's a pretty big one-month increase. Uh, What's more, the unemployment rate for African-Americans, which had fallen to a record low, jumped by almost a full percentage point. So that's not good. Now, the unemployment rate comes from a separate survey of households, which is smaller and can bounce around a lot. So I wouldn't make too much from one month's data, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on. And lastly, how will the Fed respond to this? Well, the Fed's been raising interest rates really aggressively in an effort to curb inflation, and this is going to be one more thing for the Fed to consider as it tries to decide whether to raise rates again uh, when policymakers meet in a couple of months. Right now, though, uh, the Fed's expected to leave rates unchanged. Uh, the stock market liked that. The Dow jumped nearly seven, just over 700 points today. All right. NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. Cities across the country are looking at how to help residents through extreme weather brought on by human-caused climate change. In New Orleans, neighbors are coming together to open up places that can operate off the grid after hurricanes. Hallie Parker with member station WWNO takes us to one of the first so-called community lighthouses. Somebody shout amen! This is a typical Sunday morning at Broadmoor Community Church in New Orleans. So welcome to Broadmoor. With no perfect people are allowed. Amen. That's the church's pastor, Gregory Manning. This multi-ethnic church has served the surrounding neighborhood for nearly a century, whether you worship there or not. Now, it's been transformed into a community lighthouse, a place residents can come after a hurricane. Manning says a coalition of nonprofits wants to build more of these community lighthouses. Hopefully in the very near future, there's 86 community lighthouses with power all over the city. So we are uniquely set up to respond as quickly as possible. These 86 lighthouses will be equipped with solar panels and batteries to store the energy produced. The idea came from necessity. Manning had to evacuate to Houston after Hurricane Ida in 2021. He says people still in New Orleans kept calling him, asking for help during the deadly blackout and heat that followed. 
the city was putting people on buses to remain cool. And I had so many people calling me saying, Pastor, help us find a bus that we can get on to be kept cool. Now, Manning can tell them to go to the church. After a storm, it can house 150 people. There are four large batteries outside to store power, and... Above us, the entire roof is covered with solar panels. The building can run off the grid for at least a day on just battery power. Inside, there's more than a dozen enormous refrigerators and freezers, enough to house 10,000 pounds of food per week. When the lighthouse opened earlier this year, the community gathered to celebrate with a party and a march around the block. The whole time, the church ran off solar energy. Manning's church and each new community lighthouse will also provide a cool place for people to get out of the heat, store medicine, and loan out portable batteries to charge devices. It's the smallest things that are important. There is so much that you just don't think about. Sonia St. Cyr is a longtime volunteer with the church's food pantry, and she lives three blocks from the Broadmoor Church. She has multiple sclerosis, and her electric wheelchair is her lifeline. So long power outages can leave her stranded, but not anymore. Even if there is no power in the city, I can still function to come here for however long in the day to recharge my chair. This church, along with the other community lighthouses, fit into New Orleans' larger plan to help the city withstand extreme weather. It's a plan that Austin Feldbaum helps implement. He's in charge of preparing the city for all kinds of hazards. After Hurricane Ida, Feldbaum says New Orleans opened pop-up sites at recreation centers and fire stations to help people. It was instrumental in saving lives and preventing heat-related illnesses and things like that. Feldbaum says his office is also working with Manning's Church and other nonprofits to build a network of volunteers. People from the neighborhood who can fan out and help those who can't leave on their own, like St. Cyr. We really depend on folks in the community for that work. You have an understanding of what's going on, and we need that information to make its way up. For Manning, the volunteer network has the potential to close some of those gaps in response. You got people with million-dollar homes who most likely are going to evacuate. We are responding to those that we know cannot get out. Manning and the Coalition of Nonprofits have the money to build out 24 community lighthouses across the state over the next two years. They need another $11 million to get all 86 running. So far, three have opened, just in time for this year's hurricane season. For NPR News, I'm Hallie Parker in New Orleans. Here's a sound that may soon be a memory for millions of people. Netflix plans to end password sharing. And as NPR's Netta Ulabi reports, many fans feel betrayed. It's going to be like that scene in Netflix's Stranger Things when the heroes are trying to break into a top-secret facility. Give me the code. Your Netflix code or password is going to fail. The code is wrong. There will be havoc. There will be recriminatory phone calls. I I suppose it could be wrong. How could it be wrong? The code is a number, a famous number. But the only number that matters to Netflix is 100 million people. That's how many of us around the world are not paying but watching Netflix anyway. 
Among them are three people beloved by Michael O'Connor of Ireland. He shares his Netflix password with his mom, his sister, and his partner. My first response was, I'm probably going to cancel my account. O'Connor was already irritated with Netflix. First, he says it's way more expensive than the other streamers if you're paying for the ad-free tiers. Second, Netflix has a habit of canceling his favorite shows. The OA, Warrior Nun, oh, The Dark Crystal was really, it's really bad business. I see many endings lay before us. Previous password sharers will set up their own accounts, predicts Stephen Cahall. He's an analyst for Wells Fargo Securities. The pool, he says, of brand new subscribers has shrunk. And remember, this is not easy for Netflix either. Streaming services actually don't love to crack down on password sharing. They like people engaging with the content. He says, try to see things from the point of view of Netflix and their shareholders. What they have to be worried about is a challenging ad market, a rising cost of capital, the decline of pay TV, the rising cost of sports, the slowdown of streaming and a writer's strike. Do not be shocked, Cahill says, if other streaming services follow suit. But we may be losing something culturally meaningful, says Jessica Hallam. She's 51 with a good job, but she uses her parents' password for HBO, uh, I mean, sorry, Max. I do not need their financial support, but there's something about the gift every time I log in to watch something knowing that my parents are paying for it. I, there's just something really sweet about it, right? Just ask Carrie Bradshaw. As soon as I typed in love, there he was. It's not uncommon for people to share passwords with their exes. A little intimacy and access into the life of someone you love. Meanwhile, our Irishman, Michael O'Connor, says the whole situation might drive him back to reading. <laughs> the books are usually better anyway. And cost nothing to give away. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 418 and ahead on All Things Considered here on 90.9 WBUR, the science behind why people inherit more genes from the matrilineal line. WBUR supporters include Empire Loan with eight locations in New England, proudly recognizing the Lenny Zakem Fund, a public nonprofit charitable organization who's awarded over $12 million in grants to nearly 400 Massachusetts grassroots organizations committed to advancing social, economic, and racial justice. The Lenny on Wall Street today, the Dow gained 2.1 percent. The S&P was up just under 1.5 percent. The Nasdaq closed the day up just over 1 percent. In local business news, North End restaurant owners are withdrawing their lawsuit against the city over outdoor dining. The owners had sued, claiming Boston Mayor Michelle Wu was applying restrictions unfairly to the largely Italian-American businesses. The suit had sought $1.5 million in damages for each of the four restaurant owners. A spokesman in the mayor's office says the charges in the lawsuit were without merit and the plaintiffs were right to abandon it. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. And Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty on stage now through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. 
Details at WBUR.org slash cars. It's 77 degrees in Boston. A chance of some showers and thunderstorms tonight. Tomorrow, a chance of showers. Saturday's highs in the mid-50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. We're going to take you to a bookstore in Baltimore called Charm City Books. Tall shelves are jammed full of books inside a narrow, converted four-story row house, and a big white and gray dog named Lou plods across the hardwood floors, introducing himself to everyone who walks through the door. We visited this bookstore back in February because we wanted to understand why sales of romance novels have boomed, and a group of incredibly dedicated readers helped us understand why. Hi, everybody. I'm Alyssa. I'm one of the book sluts co-leads. I want to thank you all for coming. This is such a great show out for our first in-person research of the Romance Book Club. That was Um, Alyssa Foley. She leads this book group. Readers, books in hand stretch from the front of the store all the way to the back where there's a charcuterie spread set up along with chocolates, boxed wine, and seltzer. Some people here, like Foley, have been reading romance for years, but others? So how many people is romance a new genre for them? They're exploring. Yes. Yes. Lifting proudly in the air. (laughs) We love that. Demand for romance novels is booming in the U.S., with sales of print copies surging about 52% in the year 2022, even as book sales saw a decline. That's according to Publishers Weekly. It's also something Davin Ralston has seen. She owns Charm City Books with her husband, Joe Carlson. You know, when we first started in 2019, I was like really raring to do a romance book club and have a romance section because so many bookstores don't have a romance section. And so I wanted to be really proud of it because I felt like it was important to have that representation. And for the women who may feel nervous or or made to feel ashamed of wanting to read this type of literature. I wanted it to be like very prominent in the store. And at first, you know, there wasn't a lot of interest. Honestly, at our first romance book swap, Alyssa is the only one who showed up with her husband. And so it was me and my husband and her and her husband. What was that like? Um, It was, so at first I was like, oh man, but like we actually hit it off. So now we're very good friends. It's definitely had its ups and downs, but The number of people who come in buying romance books has just like dramatically increased. And the books that people get most excited about, they'll be pre-ordering them very far in advance. Okay, so I do have to ask, who is responsible for the name of this book group? Oh my gosh. (laughs) So it's actually a funny story. I started with the book club name the Telltale Hearts, because I was like, oh, we're next to the Poe house. But on a walk with her brother, he's like, you should just name it Book Sluts. <laughs> and I was like, what? No, I could not do that. As she thought about it, though, the name grew on her. And I was like, you know what? Why not? Because there is that stigma around the word slut as well. So I was like, I feel like if we sort of lean into that, 
it's a really great way to show like we're just not ashamed of liking to read smut. Later, Alyssa and Davin started handing out these white and pink romance-themed bingo cards with little graphics of hearts all over them. Each square on the card featured one of the genre's most loved or most loathed tropes. Alyssa called them out one by one. Let's go for enemies to lovers. I bingo. bingo. Okay, enemies to lovers. Single parent, paranormal, free space, and secret And when it comes to selling romance readers on a book, especially online, tropes are a big deal. Here's Alyssa Foley again. They're a shorthand for what sort of happens in different types of stories. Things like faded mates. Marriage of convenience is one of my favorite. Forced proximity. Um, I do a lot of Instagram romance book talk stuff. Oh, um, book talk, yes. And you can easily like tag the book as this and everybody knows what it means. Romance reader Antoinette Morales says she has a bunch of favorites. I like enemies to lovers. I like meet cutes. I like fake dating. Like, oh, we have to pretend we're dating because we're going to my ex's wedding and I don't want him to know I'm lonely. I just want people to get together. I don't really care how they do it. I just, happy people loving each other. It's my favorite. (laughs) She grew up writing fan fiction, which led her to romance novels. I think this world does such a good job of telling us why we're not good enough. And finding love tells you that even if you're a little bit broken, you are good enough, if not for somebody else, then for yourself. And I think romance has a way of like filling in the cracks in yourself, sometimes with another person and sometimes with, you know, a platonic friendship and sometimes with yourself. And that's really important to me. Morales was one of several readers who pointed out the slowly increasing diversity within the genre. I jump for joy when I'm reading a book and there's a female protagonist and she wraps her hair at night. Like that makes my heart sing because it's like, oh my gosh, that's me. I get my bonnet and I put it on and then I open my book. I don't exclusively read books for people of color, women of color, but it is nice to look on a bookshelf and see it and know that it's there. It's out in the open. It's not sequestered in its own little dark corner of the bookstore. At this book club meeting, everyone was invited to bring along a favorite book to swap with someone else. The book stacked high on a square card table near the front of the store. Morales added an Allie Hazelwood book to the collection. I brought The Love Hypothesis here because I love that book. And that book was also started as fan fiction. And that book wound up in Nakara Campbell's hands. I think it's about like the scientist PhD candidate who's like trying to find love. I'm not entirely sure, but I've heard roaring reviews and I'm here for it. How did you get into reading romance books? So by accident. I actually started off with Jasmine Guillory. One, because she always showcases like black women and them being the most desired. Also, it's not like your traditional cookie cutter, like slim or whatever. She always features like either full size women, women who are wearing their natural hair. And I'm like, yep, I'm sold. I love it here. Okay, so I'm learning that everybody kind of has their favorite kind of tropes or subgenres. What are some of yours? <sighs> Powerful women uh, who are trying to find love. Uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's enough. the girl. That's the girl. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think people who shy away from romance books for whatever reason, what do they miss by steering clear? Just being vulnerable, I think. 
nobody really wants to believe they want to fall in love. Like we've been so like tough and we all deserve love and that's okay. Like just be open, be open to love. Very personal question. Yeah. How much money do you spend on books? It sounds like you read a ton. <clears throat> My boyfriend is here, so <laughs> he's right there. Okay, he can't hear me. Um, it's probably like in the like I probably spend at least a thousand a year, maybe more. The publishing industry has readers like these to thank for the surging sales of romance books. So we asked them for recommendations. This one book kept coming up. Adelani Ekwesi's book. You made a fool of death with your beauty. And as soon as Alyssa Foley said it. Everyone around her started nodding. You made a fool of death with your beauty. Every single time. Ooh, that thing is spicy. I'm still sweating. Like, I'm fanning myself thinking about that book. That book is woo. Okay, so put it on the spice meter for me. Where are we on the dial? Ooh, 12. Out of 10? Mm-hmm. Ooh. Oh, my. And this piece ends with its own love story. Since we visited that bookstore back in February, Nakara Campbell's boyfriend has become her fiancé. Congratulations, you two. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 77 degrees in Boston at 429. Tonight at 7, President Biden is expected to address the nation following the bipartisan approval of legislation that raises the debt limit. You can hear his remarks live at 7 tonight here on 90.9 WBUR. You are part of the WBUR community. That's why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It is Wednesday, June 7th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. Details at wbur.org slash open meetings. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. And Walden Local Meat, supporting local food in our communities by hand-delivering local, sustainable meat and seafood right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com. With coffee and donuts, women volunteers comforted soldiers alongside the battlefields of World War II. They were fully aware that many of those boys that they were flirting with, that they might be the last friendly faces those boys ever saw. Luis Alberto Urea's new novel honors their service, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden is scheduled to address the nation tonight on the debt limit on a deal he negotiated with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy that was passed by Congress this week. The White House says he is expected to sign it tomorrow. That will end a tumultuous episode in Washington that threatened an unprecedented default on the country's debt, which would have sent shockwaves through the global economy. The Biden administration says it is open to talks with Russia to reduce nuclear risks and says it will abide by the START treaty limits if Russia does too. Russia has suspended its participation in the New START treaty, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. New START caps the number of U.S. and Russian strategic nuclear warheads, though the two are currently not talking about ways to revive inspections and other aspects of the treaty. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the U.S. is open to talks. It is in neither of our country's interests to embark on an open-ended competition in strategic nuclear forces, and we're prepared to stick 
to the central limits as long as Russia does. Sullivan paints a grim picture of the state of nuclear diplomacy, pointing out that Iran has made big strides in its program, North Korea is making more threats, and China won't even come to the table to talk about its nuclear arsenal. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Employers added a strong 399,000 jobs in May, far more than economists had expected, and job gains for March and April were revised up by 93,000. Many industries from construction to restaurants to health care are still adding jobs to keep up with consumer demand. The unemployment rate rose slightly, though, to 3.7 percent. Wall Street ended the day higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 701 points. The Nasdaq gained 139. The S&P 500 up 61. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A conservative-leaning fiscal group says Massachusetts businesses should not be on the hook for the state's $2.5 billion mistake. An audit found Massachusetts erroneously used federal pandemic relief funds to pay for unemployment benefits in 2020. The Healy administration now needs to figure out how to pay back the federal government. The Massachusetts Fiscal Alliance says businesses suffered enough in the pandemic and should not be held liable for the blunder. More than 400 students in Somerville were barred from their school today after the building was deemed unsafe. A piece of concrete fell in a stairwell inside the Winter Hill Community School while the building was empty last weekend. WBUR's Max Larkin reports it's far from the first sign of trouble at the building. At school committee meetings this spring, Winter Hill parents and educators raised alarms about mouse droppings, crumbling walls, and 90-degree heat inside the school. But the idea of plunging concrete especially unnerves Angelina Schultz, whose son attends kindergarten there. You know, the first thing when I got that phone call, well, one, my God, what happened if that had fallen on my child or another child? And two, should I be sending him to this school? Somerville Mayor Katiana Ballantyne told parents Friday that her top priority is making the school safe, but offered no timeline for when it might reopen. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Oak trees in New Hampshire are expected to have full leaves by next month, but a recent cold snap caused more damage to the trees than ever before in more than 100 years of record-keeping about frost events. New Hampshire's Division of Forests and Lands says more than 100,000 acres of trees were affected by a late frost May 18th. The oaks lost their first leaves, but officials say the trees are resilient and should be able to grow a second set of leaves by July. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. And Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals. Hybrid workplace strategy reports and more at MPArchitectsBoston.com. It's 77 degrees in Boston, a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight. Tomorrow, a chance of showers, highs in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From BritBox, with season two of The Tower, starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder, starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
It's all things considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. Many of us have been told we look just like our parents. Well, in a few minutes, we'll hear about how we inherit more genes from one parent than the other. But first, President Biden does something tonight that he has never done before. He will deliver a formal Oval Office address to the nation. Historically, speeches from behind the Resolute desk carry added weight and attention. And in this case, Biden is capping a week where Congress passed legislation to raise the debt limit, avoiding what could have been a catastrophic default. NPR's Tamara Keith joins us from the White House. Hey, Tam. Hey. So, Tam, what are you expecting to hear from President Biden tonight? Well, this is definitely going to be a victory lap for a president who has long touted his ability to work with Congress and to make big bipartisan deals uh, during the most intense part of the negotiations with House Republicans. Speaker Kevin McCarthy was talking to reporters every few hours. He was holding court in the hallways of the Capitol. And President Biden and White House officials were notably quiet. The president was even criticized by some congressional Democrats for letting McCarthy control the narrative. Uh, But Tonight, President Biden has a lot to say, and in large part, he seems to want to get credit from the American people for averting disaster. I asked uh, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre about this. This could have been, as we've said over and over again, as you all reported, it could have been devastating, devastating to our economy, devastating to American families. He believes this is a good moment to lay that out and to talk to the American people and how we were able to come together to avert this crisis. This is President Biden getting the last word. And as of right now, at least, the three the major TV networks are expected to carry it live. And I should say that although this isn't a campaign speech, President Biden is running for re-election. And you can expect some of these themes to show up in his campaign. That's right. Tam, as we mentioned, this is the president's first Oval Office address. Why are these speeches, these types of addresses, so rare? Well, they haven't always been. President Reagan did 29 of them over two terms, breaking into primetime television programming. Uh, But a combination of changes in the media landscape and changes in presidential preferences have really moved away from Oval Office addresses. And these days, TV networks have been reluctant to give up to give up airtime, especially for speeches that could veer into overly political territory. Still, some of the most iconic presidential speeches in modern times have been delivered from the Oval Office. Think George W. Bush on 9-11 or or former President Donald Trump on March 12, 2020, shutting down air travel as the coronavirus pandemic took hold. Um, And in fact, that was the last Oval Office address until tonight. Uh, Now, this speech from President Biden, will it be memorable like that? Uh, Probably not. But this is a moment marking the end of the debt ceiling drama. Uh, And although uh, I have to say this is a primetime address at 7 p.m. on the East Coast, which by almost any definition is not actually primetime. It is more like happy hour or early happy hour uh, on the West Coast. True. So deal done, crisis averted. But the Fitch Ratings Agency today said they are not taking the U.S. off their negative watch list. Is the White House concerned about that? People uh, may have forgotten this, but in 2011, when S&P downgraded the U.S. credit rating, it happened after a debt ceiling deal had already been inked. Uh, 
And that is where the U.S. credit rating has stayed ever since. Uh, Fitch is a different credit rating agency, and um, it is concerned about political instability and partisan disagreements uh, that have been on display over the last few weeks. Uh, Karine Jean-Pierre was asked about that in the briefing today. She came out ready to talk about it and argued that this bipartisan deal is a reason not to downgrade the U.S. Mm -hmm. credit. And last thing, any sense of when President Biden will sign this bill? Well, the White House says the president will sign it as soon as he gets it, but it takes some time to enroll bills over on the Hill, uh, do all that formal paperwork and get it physically to the president. Uh, So it isn't clear exactly when that will happen, uh, but most likely tomorrow. NPR's Tamara Keith at the White House. Thanks. You're welcome. It's time now for our weekly dose of wonder from the Science Desk. This week, we're talking about genes and families. Have you ever been told you're a lot like your parents, that you're, say, your mother's daughter or your father's son? We all, of course, inherit genes from both of our biological parents, but turns out it's not a 50-50 split. We inherit more genes from one of our parents. NPR's Allison Aubrey joins us now. Hey. Hi, Juana. Good to be here. So, Allison, does this ring true to you? Have you ever been told that you're your mother's daughter? Yeah, I became interested in this, Juana, after a recent experience. I was coming out of the grocery. I had bags in my arms, and I was standing in the back of my car, unlocking my trunk, and I kind of inadvertently caught a glimpse of my reflection in the window. And I thought, oh, my God, I jumped back. That's my mother standing there. I looked just like her. Now, people had told me that for years, but I had never seen it myself, and it was a little bit eerie. (laughs) I have definitely been there before. I mean, I think a lot of us have these moments where we see ourselves and our parents. So let's turn to the science. Which parent are we, in fact, more related to? To our mothers, it turns out. And the way this works is kind of cool. I spoke to a pediatrician at Duke University, Dr. Jennifer Cohen. She's trained as a medical geneticist. All people, women and men, are more genetically related to their maternal line, I would say. Not just their mother, but their whole matrilineal line, essentially. So their mother, their maternal grandmother, and so on and so forth. Now, there are a couple of ways this works, Juana. You've heard of mitochondria, the little power plants of our cells. Well, it turns out we have DNA in our mitochondria, and it only comes from our biological mothers, not from our fathers. Basically, the mitochondrial DNA comes through the egg, not the sperm. Okay, tell me more. Do scientists know why? Well, there's a lot of speculation, and it's not just humans. Most all mammals and other creatures inherit maternal mitochondria. And when scientists studied this in worms, they found that if mitochondria from the male is introduced, it could have a damaging effect. Here's Dr. Cohen again. It seems to be that there would be a problem if both mitochondrial DNA were to make it into the embryo because of the competition that would ensue between the two types of DNA potentially. So the specifics of why and how remain a bit of a mystery. And I should point out, it's a tiny fraction of our genes we're talking about here. But what I think is intriguing is this understanding that we can trace our mitochondrial DNA from our mother to our grandmother, great-grandmother, and all the way back, you know, through time to think how many people share a direct maternal ancestor. I mean, that is pretty cool sounding. Allison, you mentioned that this works in a couple ways. We can inherit more genes from our mother's side. So what's the other way? Yeah, well, it turns out male offspring, so boys, inherit more genes from their mothers. The way this works is that when it comes to the sex chromosomes, females get two X chromosomes, one from their mother, one from their father, whereas males get an X from mom and a Y from dad. Well, it turns out the X chromosome contains a lot more genes, more than a thousand genes. 
whereas the Y chromosome has far fewer genes, about 100 or 200 genes. So technically, a male individual will have more genes from their mother than from their father. So when a person is told, you're your mother's daughter or you're your father's son, well, of course they are. But understanding these differences and the genes that we inherit from both parents as well, quite wondrous. NPR's Allison Aubrey, thank you so much. Thank you. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. As the school year winds down, it is time to take stock. Many districts have been struggling with teacher shortages. At the same time, Republican lawmakers and activists are pushing efforts to restrict what can be said and read in schools. So NPR teamed up with Ipsos on a pair of new polls to find out how teachers and parents alike are feeling. As NPR's Corey Turner reports, the polls found something surprising given these divided times. Consensus. 90% of parents and the general public agree that teaching is a worthwhile profession that deserves respect. It's broad, I know, but when was the last time 90% of Americans agreed on anything? The bad news here is that much of the consensus is that things aren't great right now. We need to help support teachers as much as we can. Sylvia Gonzalez is a veteran teacher in the Dallas area. So that the good ones aren't burning out and finding waitressing jobs to do because they can either get more money or they just don't want to deal with it. In our poll of teachers, 93% say they're asked to do too much for the pay they get. It turns out three quarters of the public agree. Are you freaking kidding me? Mike Kerr is a Colorado Republican with two kids in public schools who says teachers are absolutely undervalued. Even if they're getting paid a million dollars, they're not getting paid what they're worth. Our poll of teachers surfaced a few other red flags. Two thirds say over the past 10 years, working conditions have gotten worse. Leanne Bennett teaches at an alternative middle school in Oregon and says when she first started teaching, educators had the freedom to decide what to teach, how to teach, when to teach. They just had a lot more decision-making power. I believe that they were treated more as professionals. But that trust in teachers, Bennett says, has eroded. Nowadays, it feels like we are treated as though we're glorified babysitters and we're working to warehouse children and uh, provide a place to keep them while their parents are out working. But teachers do so much more than that, says Scott Lone, who works with at-risk middle and high school students in Wisconsin. All it takes is one teacher to be a beacon of hope for that child, and that child will flourish. Lone is openly gay and says if teachers are not allowed to help students who feel marginalized because of their gender identity or their race or learning disability. If we can't be that beacon of hope, then we have done a disservice to the teaching profession. We have done a disservice to humanity, and we really ought to be ashamed of ourselves. 73% of teachers tell us the public's perception of them has also gotten worse over the past 10 years, and half of the public agree. Part of that is likely fueled by high-profile culture war fights over book bans and restrictions on teachers discussing race, sexuality, and gender identity with students. The irony, though, is that in our poll of parents and the public, it's clear these efforts are not broadly popular. 
even among Republicans. It's really this focus, I think, on some of the most extreme voices that has made teachers feel persecuted or feel like their job has gotten harder. Mallory Newell is a vice president at Ipsos. And that's not how the vast majority of the American public feels. Most Americans still agree that teachers should be trusted to make decisions in their classroom and that teaching is a profession that's deserving of respect. Leanne Bennett, the middle school teacher in Oregon, says ongoing efforts to limit teachers miss the whole point of teaching, to help children learn not what to think, but how. Corey Turner, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 4.48 tonight at 7. President Biden is set to address the nation following the bipartisan approval of legislation that raises the debt limit. You can hear his remarks live at 7 tonight here on 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about half an hour on All Things Considered, before a person can practice law, many states require a character and fitness evaluation. And that evaluation digs into encounters with law enforcement and digs into mental health. In New York, there's a push to ban the inquiry. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. It is 77 degrees in Boston, a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight. Some storms could produce hail, gusty winds, heavy rain, frequent lightning. Lows tonight in the low 50s, then tomorrow, a chance of showers and Saturday's highs in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness. Located in Littleton, Mass., more at SoaringHawkCenter.com. You know that phrase, strength in numbers? Well, that's how WBUR really works. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. The strength of our journalism comes from combining contributions from tens of thousands of listeners every year. This coming Monday through Thursday, WBUR will have a brief but important fundraiser. The goal? 700 listeners becoming monthly contributors. Be one of them. Help us off to a strong start by giving right now. Just go to WBUR.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Nora and Arthur from the new movie Past Lives have a loving marriage and a fulfilling creative partnership. She's a playwright. He's an author. But they're so different in so many other ways. Is this what you imagined for yourself when you left school? When I was a 12-year-old? Yeah. Is this what you pictured for yourself? Laying in bed in some tiny apartment in the East Village with some Jewish guy who writes books. That's Greta Lee, starring as Nora, who left Korea as a kid and left behind her childhood sweetheart, Hisung. Hisung tracks her down decades later in New York. Reconnecting with him prompts all kinds of questions for Nora about the path she chose in life and how her decisions have reshaped her identity. He still lives with his parents, which is really Korean. I mean, there's all these really Korean views about everything. And I feel so not Korean when I'm with him. But also, 
in some way more Korean. So weird. It's a sentiment that felt so familiar to me as a Taiwanese-American woman, that feeling of living in between, between Western and Eastern, between kinship and distance. Greta Lee and I talked about how her character Nora embodied that tension in this film. In Nora's case, she's she's Korean-Canadian, but if you look at, let's say, the language aspect of it, it was so important to accurately convey the fluidity of language and and when you mention like okay feeling more asian around certain people or less that kind of fluctuation is something that is so real and personal to me um and we wanted to bring that to the character in this story yeah so in certain it was so crucial to really hone in on and be really specific in certain cases about well is she going to sound, how how Asian does she sound? How Korean does she sound at the beginning of a scene as opposed to the end of the scene? After, let's say, several hours of talking to his home in Korean and just being mindful of all of that, I mean, was a reflection of what this experience is that, that we're talking about of living in the in-between, mm-hmm. experiencing that full spectrum of Western and Eastern and you know. Oh my God, like especially that moment when Nora's lying in bed with her husband and he mentions that she talks in her sleep in Korean. And yeah. she didn't even know that that was what was happening. Well, there's something so exposing about language, right? I mean, yeah. I my language, my my Koreanness is is something that's so private. And actually, you know, I was like surprised and kind of I tickled by uh, the response from my friends and family initially when they heard that I was taking this on, this kind of reaction collectively of like, oh my God, but can you actually speak Korean? You can speak Korean. <laughs> how good, how good is your Korean? Oh, oh no. And but what I feel like what that was honing in on is there is so much to um the way we hold on to whether it's our native language or our second language and um, what that relationship is like. Um, So that scene, yeah, that scene when she's talking to Arthur about it, it is so personal. The the fact that her husband can identify that that is something that is a place that he can't go. He can't access. He can't. And he is fully cognizant of that. Did you surprise yourself that you could speak Korean so well in this movie? Were you like kind of reaccessing this deep reservoir in your own brain? Like, oh, I I know this. I can speak so much better than people were giving me credit for. I never expected to do a movie in Korean with this much Korean, a movie in any other language other than <laughs> my primary language, which is English. And being immersed and reimmersed in my Korean and Koreanness, it unlocked a lot of different things. It, it cracked mm-hmm. open for me, recognizing all the shifts that I'd made in my life and my career, this trajectory of what this means to have this immigrant experience. Yes, we have academic ideas of what assimilation is, but it became really personal. And it was, I think, in a way, it matched maybe Nora's experience of feeling the heartbreak mm-hmm. and the loss of identity, letting go of former selves and and just reconciling that, you know, the the choices that we make 
where we live, who we're surrounded by, they have incredible, massive impacts on the full trajectory of our lives. Yes. Well, you segue beautifully into my next question. A Korean concept known as inyon comes up in this story. Explain what that is really briefly to people who have no idea what this term means. Inyon, to me, as I know it, is just about human connectedness. It's rooted in ideas of reincarnation, and it could be as slight as two people walking down the street and brushing up against each other, and it could also be as deep and vast as the connection that we would have with a parent or a spouse, um, spanning over multiple lifetimes even. Exactly. Can I ask you, Greta, have you ever felt Inyan before? This feeling of, I've met you before. I feel like I already know you. When, when you meet somebody for the first time. Something that springs to mind is I felt a deep Inyan with the script, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like a deep connection yeah. with the script. Uh-huh. It cut through me. I had such a profound experience in reading the gorgeous words that Celine had written. That's Celine Song, the writer and director. Yes. And it wasn't until a year later that the job came to fruition. So for me, like this idea of destiny and fate and connectedness is Mm. just embedded Mm. in so many aspects of this job and this process. And yes, I also feel union with them. You know, maybe there was a boy in kindergarten named Jimmy. Um, Jimmy, if you're out there, I think we have, we, we have union. (laughs) You've met Jimmy in a past life. Yes. Way before kindergarten. (laughs) You know, I cried so much well throughout the movie but especially at the end and i'm not going to give anything away but it filled me with such hope Mm. the end because it was like there is such beauty in committing to one path yes you lose something you sacrifice something with each choice you make but you also gain something right yeah i mean there's that beautiful moment in the beginning of the movie when nora's mother um, says, and uh, hopefully I'm not messing up this quote, that in order to gain something, sometimes you have to lose something. Mm-hmm. So exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I I can definitely relate to that idea of of love and, and destiny, not as sort of like these neat constructs, but just as a living and breathing entity in and of itself that evolves with us over the course of our lives. Absolutely. Greta Lee stars in the new film, Past Lives. Thank you so much for sharing this time with us, Greta. This was such a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. From Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From Fisher Investments, As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It is 77 degrees in Boston on this Friday afternoon, as all things considered, continues at 5. The National Weather Service has issued a flash flood warning for north central Middlesex County. That's until 6.15 this evening. Chance of showers and thunderstorms in the Boston area tonight and lows in the low 50s. Tomorrow, a chance of showers and Saturday's highs in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. has imposed its first sanctions related to the conflict in Sudan after ceasefire efforts collapsed. It's Friday, June 2nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, a man who says he was sexually abused as a teenager by the Archdiocese of Baltimore says, along with hundreds of others, he plans to sue the church. I had been so guilt-ridden my entire life, thinking that my silence had allowed the victimization of other children. And you'll hear about a climate scientist in Alaska who's mapped out a year-long road journey around the U.S. where the weather averages 70 degrees the entire journey. Also, you'll get the story on a new work of fiction. Mary Trump has written a romance novel with the help of E. Jean Carroll. It's 501 First This News. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Joe Biden will take a victory lap tonight addressing the nation from the Oval Office after the successful passage in both the House and Senate of a deal that would suspend the debt ceiling through the election. The temporary hold coming as the country's $31.4 trillion borrowing limit was in danger of expiring. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre today praised the bipartisan agreement. Members of Congress from both parties came together to prevent a catastrophic default and demonstrated once more that America is a nation that pays its bills and meets its obligations. Failure to reach a deal could potentially have sent the U.S. into a first ever default. The bill approved in Congress goes to President Biden, who is due to speak at 7 p.m. Eastern time. The Justice Department is expected to announce it is closing its investigation into classified documents found at the home of former Vice President Mike Pence. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports no charges will be filed in the case. An advisor to former Vice President Pence says they are pleased but not surprised at the end of the federal probe. Two sources confirmed the Justice Department sent a letter to Pence saying the investigation would close without any finding of criminal wrongdoing. The news was first reported by CNN. A Pence lawyer found a small number of documents in Pence's Indiana home earlier this year and promptly turned the papers over to the government. The news comes days before Pence is expected to make a formal announcement about his bid for the White House in 2024. A separate investigation into obstruction and mishandling of top-secret documents by former President Donald Trump is still underway. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. NPR is losing a critical employee whose editorial judgment and generous heart has guided our coverage. Executive Editor Terrence Terry Samuel become the next Editor-in-Chief of USA Today. 
NPR's David Falkenflick reports Samuel helped lead the NPR newsroom for the past six years. In making the announcement, USA Today's parent company Gannett praised Samuel's ability to foster cultural change in newsrooms. Samuel is a veteran political reporter and editor with stints at The Washington Post, the St. Louis Globe Dispatch, and other outlets. At NPR, Samuel helped reinvigorate the network's metabolism for covering the news and its focus on serving digital audiences. The network has had troubles with a severe drop in podcasting revenues forcing layoffs. USA Today is one of a handful of true national papers, but it has been undermined by waves of cuts. The company incurred hundreds of millions of dollars in debt to finance a major merger. Hundreds of journalists at two dozen local Gannett papers are set to walk out on Monday in protest of conditions there. David Folkenflick, NPR News. U.S. employers stepped up the pace of hiring last month. The Labor Department reporting the economy added 339,000 jobs in May. Well above expectations and evidence that even in the face of a string of Fed rate hikes, the economy remains resilient. Stocks skyrocketed on the debt deal today. The Dow up more than 700 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. As President Biden prepares to sign the debt ceiling bill approved last night by the U.S. Senate, some lawmakers are hailing the bipartisan agreement for avoiding what could have been a cataclysmic default by the U.S. government. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports the two Massachusetts senators, Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey, voted against the agreement. Warren and Markey were among a number of progressives who voted against the deal to avoid default that was supported by most Democrats. In a statement before the vote, Markey said it fast-tracks dirty fossil fuel projects at the expense of environmental justice, referring to approval of a natural gas pipeline that was part of the agreement. Warren said it weakens the fight against climate change, represents a giveaway to billionaires, and rewards Republicans for manufacturing the crisis. Here's what she told WCVB before she voted no. We should never have been put in this position to begin with. This is about paying the ransom to a bunch of hostage takers, and that is not how we should run this government. Warren favors legislation to strip Congress of the power to block raising the debt limit. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. President Biden will discuss the agreement in an address to the nation tonight at 7. WBUR will carry that live. Ferry service between Lynn and Boston is expected to resume soon and become permanent. The city will lease facilities to the MBTA. The lease will cover the use of Lynn's pier, terminal, and parking for the ferry service for two years. Lynn Mayor Jared Nicholson says earlier pilot programs have shown water transit is a great alternative, especially when the Sumner Tunnel will be closed in July and August for renovations. It is all the more important with closure of the Sumner Tunnel happening soon because it does offer a real way to mitigate some of the havoc that's going to wreak on our road. So the timing is ideal. The mayor says the MBTA is expected to quickly finalize the agreement so the service will be operating soon. In the forecast, a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight and lows in the low 50s. A chance of some showers tomorrow, highs in the mid-50s. The National Weather Service has issued a flash flood warning for north-central Middlesex County. That's in effect until 6.15 p.m. this evening. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Smart Month, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. Smart Mouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at smartmouth.com. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The U.S. has imposed its first sanctions relating to the conflict in Sudan. The sanctions come after weeks of intense fighting and multiple failed ceasefire attempts. J. Peter Fahm is the former U.S. Special Envoy to the Sahel region. Ambassador Fahm, welcome to All Things Considered. Oh, thank you for having me, Ari. What's your initial reaction to these sanctions? Well, the sanctions are a good first step. It indicates the seriousness with which the United States and really the international community views the seventh week of fighting, the 2,000, at least so the official count, 2,000 civilians killed, 1.6 million displaced. It's a humanitarian tragedy already and increasingly the toll that it's taking on not only just Sudan but its neighbors is very serious. So it's a good first step, but it is only that, I emphasize, a first step. Sudan's army has backed out of talks to extend the ceasefire. And so do you think we've reached the point of no return? Is this a full-blown civil war? One could argue that we've definitely reached a tipping point, although one could have said that, you know, weeks ago. But certainly this week has been particularly tragic with the walk away from the ceasefire, which had been brokered by the United States and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, down to today the tragic looting of the Sudan National Museum. I want to touch on the human cost of this conflict. Today on Morning Edition, we heard from Reuters journalist Maggie Michel about babies who are dying of heat and hunger at the largest orphanage in Khartoum. Let's listen. So they don't have anyone to feed them. They needed to have a bottle of milk every three hours. They're just babies. Um, The milk could be there, but no one to actually carry them and feed them. The number two um, is heat. The last wave was really, really hard. We have 13 in one day, 10 in a second day, 14 in another day. And it's because of heat. Ambassador Fahm, if this conflict doesn't end quickly, what does that mean for people living in the crossfire? It's going to be a very tenuous existence. Uh, The arrival of food, of clean water, of fuel to keep generators, electricity, water flowing. And we're heading into the full heat of the summer. So it's going to be very, very difficult. But it's also going to be difficult for people in the periphery. Sudan is a somewhat centralized country. There are only few channels in which imports of vital medicine and other supplies can come in. So I think the whole country is going to be hurting. And then the neighbors themselves are saturated with refugees, and now they're getting more. Sudan itself used to welcome refugees. And now those some of those people are being already refugees from one conflict, now f- discovering another where they've had refugees, and now moving to a third country. It's It's a humanitarian tragedy. Can you explain to people who see this as an internal conflict why the U.S. should be playing an active role here? Well, it is in our national interest, to put it very bluntly. Not just our values and the concerns we've expressed about the humanitarian toll, but Sudan sits astride the Red Sea. 10 to 15 percent of the world's commerce flows right past Sudan. It borders upon other conflicts that have either just recently been pacified or are ongoing. Ethiopia, South Sudan, Chad, Egypt, sensitive areas, Libya. Plus, we have malign external actors muscling in. The Wagner Group of Russia has made overtures, and there have been links to the RSF. There have been attempts by Russia to gain a port on the Red Sea in Sudan. So... There are all sorts of other factors on the geopolitical level, 
and plus the interests of a number of our partners in the region. Sudan had been set to join the Abraham Accords, an Israeli delegation visited earlier this year. Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, other partners in the Gulf have significant investments. So to paraphrase an old uh, advertising adage, what happens in Sudan is not going to stay in Sudan. That's Ambassador J. Peter Fahm, former U.S. Special Envoy to the Sahel region. He's now a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council. Thank you so much. Thank you. Multiple U.S. states are rethinking how long victims should have to seek damages from sex abusers in civil court. Maryland is the latest state to abolish its civil statute of limitations as hundreds of people are preparing to sue the Catholic Archdiocese of Baltimore for damages. WYPR Scott Massioni has more. All over Maryland, billboards, TV commercials, and social media ads are popping up, informing people they have the right to sue the Catholic Church. The Maryland General Assembly passed a law this year abolishing the statute of limitations on civil suits for sex crimes. It coincided with the report that more than 600 children were abused by members of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. 64-year-old Kit Bateman was one of those victims. He says he was abused at a Catholic high school in Baltimore when he was a teenager. Going to church was his favorite thing to do as a child. He sang in the choir and was an altar boy. But all of that changed after the abuse. They took my innocence. They took my soul. They took my ability to celebrate the life of Jesus every day like I liked to do. For 50 years, it was gone. A 2014 study found that the average age for reporting child sex abuse is 52. Bateman started coming to terms with his abuse around the age of 60 when he saw stories about sex abuse in Pennsylvania Catholic churches. He spent decades in complete shutdown because of what happened to him, and it took his faith in God to come forward. I had been so guilt-ridden my entire life from my silence, thinking that my silence had allowed the victimization of other children and that it was my fault. Maryland's the most recent state to acknowledge that previously accepted time limits for suing sexual abusers are too short for how long it takes people to come to terms with the trauma they faced. Since 2016, 10 other states have expanded the time people have to file civil suits against sex abusers or abolish the limitations altogether. Bateman decided he wanted to sue the church when he saw the Baltimore Archbishop trying to defeat the law abolishing age limits on civil suits for sex crimes. When I saw that, I thought, wow, what about my soul that you all took from me when I was 14? He did not understand, for a man of God does not understand repentance. The renewed ability to bring suit in Maryland could pay for care for a lifetime of suffering. So we know that child sexual abuse increases the risk for serious health problems, including mental health problems like post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. Elizabeth Letourneau is the director of the Moore Center for the Prevention of Child Sexual Abuse at Johns Hopkins University. Child sexual abuse takes a real financial toll on survivors who, over the course of their lives, will earn nearly $300,000 less than people who did not experience child sexual abuse. Maryland's new law caps damages at $1.5 million, but it doesn't set a limit for what institutions have to pay for medical expenses, like the cost of therapy. The Baltimore Archdiocese declined to comment for this piece, but it could be facing serious payouts. Analysts familiar with sexual assault say there are possibly thousands of victims who still haven't come forward. Suzanne Sangri is a senior counsel with Grant and Eisenhofer, a firm representing victims in Maryland. The Archdiocese of Baltimore is the first archdiocese in the New World. 
it certainly was the first cathedral here and it's got enormous resources. There have been 20 settlements in the U.S. to victims of dioceses and archdioceses since 1994, totaling $1.2 billion. Lawyers in the Maryland area say they already have hundreds of victims who are prepared to sue, but won't be able to file suits until the new law takes effect this fall. Kit Bateman recently joined a non-denominational church and is recapturing the love for faith-based community he missed all those decades. It's religious fuel you know, for me. Keeps me going. It's a community that's just different. It's a family. He says his confrontation with what happened helped start the revival in his worship. For NPR News, I'm Scott Massioni in Baltimore. Imagine a year-long cross-country road trip with perfect weather. Seem impossible? Well, climate scientist Brian Brechneider in Anchorage, Alaska, has mapped out a way, in fact, several ways, that follow 70-degree weather year-round. As a climate scientist, I'm always looking for ways to, to connect people with climate data. I think most people have done road trips in their life. People have gotten in a car or a camper or a train, and they've watched the world pass by. So this is a way to kind of reinvigorate a road trip in a way that people really haven't ever really thought about before. The first maps came out in 2015 when Brett Schneider was a faculty researcher at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. He was analyzing how temperature changed throughout the year when he noticed something interesting. Pretty much somewhere in the U.S. was always 70 degrees at any given time during the year. So just for fun. I threw some lines on a map and connected them to the highways and, and put it out there. One for the lower 48, which ran 9,000 miles long, and another that was a 13,000-mile version, which included parts of Canada and Alaska. With these maps, you would start your road trip on January 1st in South Texas and chase the perfect weather northeast. So you're in Washington, D.C. by the end of April and then head back west and end the year in San Diego. And these maps really resonated with people, so much so that fans asked him to update the maps when new climate data came out, and last month, he finally did. The major differences are that the journey now starts in California instead of South Texas. The weather itself hasn't drastically changed in eight years, but it is something he's thinking about. The world is warming. The United States is warming, Canada's warming. And what's going to happen is these lines, if you think of these as lines on a map, they'll shift over time. Right now, we're able to put a route through Canada in the summertime, but as it warms up, maybe it's just too warm to find a route that's 70 degrees through Canada in the summertime. So far, Brett Schneider hasn't heard of anyone actually attempting one of his road trips. He hasn't done it himself either. Perhaps someday. It's a road trip that is best suited to someone who is retired, and I'm still quite a ways away from retirement. So who knows? Maybe when I retire, things will have warmed to the point where maybe there's not a 70-degree route anymore. So if you're still looking for weekend plans like I am, the newest routes suggest Massachusetts or Minnesota. Convenient, I'll be in Rhode Island. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 518 and coming up in about five minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, the first film in an animated Spider-Verse trilogy won an Oscar in 2018. The latest installment, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, is considered a strong contender to repeat that accomplishment. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100, now on view, ICABoston.org. 
On Wall Street today, the Dow gained 2.1%. The S&P was up just under 1.5%. The Nasdaq closed the day up just over 1%. In local business news, Braintree is in line to get a campus for film and TV productions. The Boston-based real estate firm Rise said today it has a purchase and sale agreement with the landowner for Banner Park. Rise says it will develop space for sound stages and for other production uses. Plans also call for public walking trails. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, empower a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at wbur.org cars. It is 74 degrees in Boston, and rain is moving through the area. In isolated areas, the rain is heavy. The National Weather Service has issued a severe thunderstorm warning for areas including Franklin, Milford, and Medfield. That's in effect until 545. And it's issued a flash flood warning for north-central Middlesex County. That's in effect until 615. Tomorrow in the Boston area, a chance of some showers and highs in the mid-50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. And from Angie. Angie's List is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. In order to become practicing lawyers, students must first pass the bar exam. They also have to submit to a character and fitness evaluation, which digs into criminal history. That evaluation has become increasingly controversial. Many say it's discriminatory in a profession that needs to diversify. NPR's Jasmine Garst looks into efforts to change it. In 2018, Dieter Tejada took the bar exam in Connecticut. Just a few years back, he was told by many he'd never make it this far. When he was 17, Tejada was arrested and convicted for a crime he says he didn't commit. But he served his sentence. The experience made him want to be a lawyer. My intentions of getting to this was to try and make a system better for people, try and help people. And by and large, that's what you find when you find people that have a criminal record and want to be lawyers. Tejada passed the bar exam, but when he got to the character and fitness evaluation, his application was flagged. He says going through law school after having served time. It is so much harder, so much harder to do. So for anyone that like goes through that trouble, I would say that we have more character and fitness in a lot of ways. Tejada withdrew and focused instead on applying for a pardon, which he hopes will give him a better shot. The whole ordeal took a massive toll on him financially, graduating with student debt and narrow employment opportunities. Across the U.S., state bars have some version of this inquiry. Some look at arrests, convictions, and juvenile records, even those that are sealed. Attorney T. Andrew Brown is the former president of the New York State Bar Association. He says for years in New York... 
it didn't matter if it was a citation, if it was a traffic ticket, if you were stopped as you were walking down the sidewalk and detained for a period of time, you would even have to disclose that. For years, Brown pushed for changes to the character and fitness inquiry. He says it's more than just a questionable practice, it's illegal. Any other licensing body in New York can ask about arrests and can ask about sealed convictions. There are lawyers who have criminal backgrounds or have been incarcerated. What activists argue is that the roadblocks disproportionately affect people of color. Attorney Al Brooks is with the group Unlock the Bar, which advocates for a more equitable legal profession in New York. He says since Blacks and Latinos are unequally within the criminal justice system, it's especially important to have participation in the legal profession. The character and fitness just unabashedly prohibits that and prevents that by saying if you're somebody who's been directly impacted by the criminal legal system, then you are not going to have any power in the criminal legal system. According to the American Bar Association, only around 5% of lawyers in the U.S. are Black. 6% are Hispanic. Attorney Tolu Lawal, also with Unlock the Bar, says... The makeup of the legal profession is so much more than the admission to the profession. It's about whose perspectives and opinions become hardened into legal fact. Some states have begun changing parts of the character and fitness inquiry. Last month, New York amended it to say applicants no longer have to disclose things like tickets or encounters with law enforcement that didn't result in formal criminal charges. T. Andrew Brown says it's a start, but applicants will still get asked questions about all past criminal records. We want to allow young people to correct their ways and not have them be burdened throughout the rest of their lives. To dredge this back up when they want to become lawyers is deeply troublesome. He says if we're serious about a more just legal system, it's the wrong message to send. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. When the animated story of an Afro-Latino superhero, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, was released in 2018, few observers expected it to become the hit it, to be the hit it became. But a box office take of almost $400 million and the films winning the Oscar for Best Animated Feature have set the bar a whole lot higher for the sequel. Critic Bob Mondello says happily, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse exceeds expectations. Here we go again, again. My name's Miles Morales. I'm Brooklyn's one and only Spider-Man. Not sure if Spidey's is the most started, restarted, and possibly jump-started superhero saga ever, but with eight live-action features starring three different Peter Parkers and now two gorgeously animated Spider-Verses starring Shameik Moore's Miles, it has to be up there. And yet there's a new wrinkle, a faceless guy in white with black holes all over him robbing a convenience store. Excuse me, do you have uh, an ATM machine? Yeah, I roll here in the box. Preferably not chained to the wall. Uh, nothing. This should be simple enough. Just make a hole, grab the money. Why do people say ATM machine? Who said that? The M stands for machine. So are you like a cow or a Dalmatian? He's more a walking wormhole. I am the spot. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's not funny. It kind of is, except the wormholes he creates are destabilizing whole universes, not to mention making Miles late for a meeting with his folks and a high school guidance counselor. And a B in Spanish. What? Woo, Miles. Are you trying That gets him grounded until a pal shows up through one of the spot's wormholes. Miles! Gwen? Wanna get out of here? Gwen Stacy, ghost spider in her universe, introducing him to an elite crew that includes all the best spider people. Spider-Man. Oh, no way. All of us are. And even a spider cat. Can this day get weirder? I guess it can. Where Into the Spider-Verse was essentially a tricky exercise in world building, Across the Spider-Verse is about maturity and personal growth. Miles discovers that his new spider buds have a lot in common. There's moments in our stories that are the same for all of us. The death of Uncle Ben, say, and even as a South Asian spider dude establishes personality quirks regarding phrasing. I love chai tea. Chai tea? Chai means tea. You're saying tea tea. So the question confronting Miles is the one that confronts most 15-year-olds indeed most people, with a life trajectory basically laid out by family, tradition, circumstances. Everyone keeps telling me how my story is supposed to go. Does he still have options? I'm gonna do my own thing. What makes his working out of the question artful is the literal art the filmmakers bring to it. Thread the needle! Clever takes on comic book illustration mixed with uniquely cinematic animated styling for each Spider-Verse. In fact, for each Spider-Person, from punkish graffiti to Lego blocks, urban grid saturated Indian reds and golds, and the shifting watercolor pastels that make Gwen's universe seem to be reflecting her moods. In every other universe, Gwen Stacy falls for Spider-Man. And in every other universe, it doesn't end well. Well, it's the first time for everything, right? If the last film was a major reset for genre expectations, Across the Spider-Verse is an expansion for artistic ones, rich enough in feeling and character and innovative visuals to warrant, and I'm kind of astonished to be saying this, the second or even third visit that fans will want to give it. I may just join them. I'm Bob Mandela. Just to save you, I give all of me. I can hear you screaming out. This is NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. It's 529 and 74 degrees in Boston. Rain's moving through the area. In isolated areas, the rain is heavy. The National Weather Service has issued a severe thunderstorm warning for areas including Franklin, Milford, and Medfield. That's until 545. It's also issued a flash flood warning for north central Middlesex County. That's until 615. Tomorrow, in the Boston area, a chance of some showers and highs in the mid-50s. The weekend is upon us, and this weekend, some of your listening options are changing here on WBUR. For example, you'll get a second chance to hear Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on Sunday mornings, and you can catch the Moth Radio Hour on Saturday evenings. You can check the details of your new weekend soundtrack at wbur.org schedule.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at SertaPro.com. That's Serta with a C. On this week's Wait, Wait, actor and director Regina King explains her lifelong crush on Sam Elliott in the movie Roadhouse. Just something about when he has that rubber band in his mouth and he's pulling his hair back and he's about to whoop them. It, it was just sexy to oh. this little girl. I'm Peter Sagal. It's a delightfully confessional new quiz this week. Join us for an all-star Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden is expected to address the nation tonight on the debt ceiling bill passed by Congress this week that averts a default that would have had global implications. The White House says Biden is expected to sign the legislation as soon as tomorrow. NPR's Franco Ordonez has more. President Biden has another win to notch after the Senate followed the House and passed legislation that cuts federal spending as well as suspends the debt ceiling until after the 2024 election. The bipartisan deal comes just days before the Treasury Secretary had warned that the government would run out of money to pay its bills. It also ends months of tensions in Washington after Republicans refused to raise the debt limit unless Biden and the Democrats place more restrictions on federal spending. The president tweeted after the Senate vote that no one gets everything they want in a negotiation, but that senators voted to protect hard-earned economic progress. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. The first tropical storm of the Atlantic hurricane season, Arlene, has formed in the Gulf of Mexico. NPR's Greg Allen reports it's part of a system that's bringing heavy rain to South Florida. Arlene is more than 250 miles west of the Florida coast, moving south toward Cuba. The National Hurricane Center says it's likely to weaken soon and lose its tropical storm characteristics. Although it's not directly related to Arlene, parts of central and south Florida are expected to see up to five inches of rain that could cause some flooding. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration NOAA is predicting that this will be a near-normal hurricane season, with five to nine hurricanes, one to four major hurricanes, and 12 to 17 named storms, of which Arlene is the first. Hurricane season extends through the end of November. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 701 points. That's a gain of 2.1 percent. The Nasdaq up 139 points. That's up 1 percent. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Fast-moving storms are moving through quickly. There is a severe thunderstorm warning in the Franklin area in the Worcester County town of Spencer. Lightning is suspected of sparking a church fire. The congregational church is completely engulfed in flames. Firefighters from several communities are battling that fire. Anti-hunger advocates say the debt ceiling agreement approved by Congress will make it harder for people who receive food assistance SNAP benefits. Project Bread President and CEO Aaron McAleer points to the tighter work requirements for recipients age 50 to 54. McAleer is calling on the Massachusetts congressional delegation to speak out against that provision. The negotiating process around the debt ceiling should never have been a vehicle to punish people who are already in a crisis. We should not have low-income individuals as pawns in these political and preventable um, crises. WBUR will air President Biden's speech on the debt ceiling agreement live tonight beginning at 7. Six New Hampshire police officers have been cleared of any wrongdoing in the shooting death of a man in Manchester. 
The state attorney general's investigation determined the officers were justified in using deadly force against the man during a domestic violence call last June. The attorney general says the man refused to surrender and was pointing a gun at officers. The state of Massachusetts is asking you to help rebuild natural habitats in your own backyard for bees, butterflies, and other pollinators. Massachusetts is giving away wildflower seed starting kits. Agricultural Resources Commissioner Ashley Randall says farmers depend on pollinators. In a few weeks, you may see uh, bees, for instance, going to help with the cranberry crop. In the fall, you see them come for the apple crop. So it's not only just the nursery industry that's benefiting, but it's all of our stakeholders across the Commonwealth. Randall says loss of habitat is the biggest threat to pollinators. The starter kits are being offered at participating nurseries. You can find the list at the mass.gov site and search for Choosing Pollinators. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust committed to conserving and promoting New England's native plants to ensure healthy, biologically diverse landscapes. More at nativeplanttrust.org. It's 74 degrees in Boston with rain moving through the area. In some areas, the rain is heavy. The National Weather Service has a severe thunderstorm warning in effect for areas including Franklin, Milford, and Medfield. That's for about the next 10 minutes. There's also a flash flood warning in effect for north central Middlesex County for about the next half hour. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. There is a new romance novel coming out now in installments on Substack. But the person writing it and the people helping her are not your usual romance authors. That story is coming up in just a little bit. But first, the Republican presidential field is expanding. Three more candidates are expected to jump into the race next week, including a couple of very big names. Who are they and what will this mean for voters' choices in next year's presidential election? The Republican National Committee this afternoon also announced the requirements for its first debate, Spoiler alert, those rules might keep some of these candidates off the stage. We are joined now by NPR's senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro. Hey there. Hey, Juana. All right, Domenico, it is Friday, but it sounds like next week is going to be very busy in the political world. Can you just start by walking us through it all? Yeah, the campaign trail certainly has got a lot happening uh, next week. I mean, on Sunday, we're going to see a town hall from Nikki Haley, uh, the former South Carolina governor. And we haven't heard too much about her since uh, she started running here because she's been overshadowed by some of the other candidates like Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor. On Tuesday, we expect to see... Chris Christie, the former New Jersey governor, jump in the race again as he ran in 2015 as well. On Wednesday, former Vice President Mike Pence is also expected to get in, as is North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, who many people may not have heard of or know, but he's actually a billionaire, so money's not going to be much of a problem for him uh, throughout this campaign. Um, And that would make nine major GOP candidates in this race, and this could expand even further. We're still waiting on other possibilities like Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin's uh, 
New Hampshire uh, Governor Chris Sununu and Liz Cheney, the former uh, Wyoming Congresswoman. And, you know, this could be a pretty crowded debate stage like we've seen in past years if they all do make it. Yeah, that would. I mean, to that point, tell us about the criteria for who's actually going to be allowed on the debate stage for this first debate. Yeah, they announced that this first debate is uh, August 23rd in Milwaukee. Uh, We could have a second if the number looks um, who qualify looks to be too many. And you might remember they did this in 2016, and it looked sort of like a varsity and JV team, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, thing. You know, still there's a lot of time, and you know, there's here are some of the things that uh, we know that they're going to now be requiring. There's a couple of things: polling and fundraising requirements in polling. Starting in July, these candidates will have to earn a 1% in three national polls or two national polls and in two early states, they'll have to get 1%, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, or Nevada. Fundraising, 40,000 donors total, it's a pretty big number, and they have to have 200 or more in at least 20 states, so pretty broad uh, amount is what they want to see. You know, this is key for someone like Chris Christie, who wants to go after Trump and do it on a big stage. And we know he's done it before. I mean, just ask Marco Rubio. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can't just buy your way onto this debate stage. So thinking of people like Vivek Ramaswamy and Burgum, who um, you know have pretty limited national profiles but are wealthy. Um, the RNC says that these measures could actually become more strict for future debates, uh, notably They also have to sign a pledge of support for whomever wins the Republican nomination. Of course, that wouldn't stop Trump, for example, uh, from saying he'll do that, but then not. Or someone who doesn't like Trump from doing the same thing. Okay, yeah, we're definitely going to be watching that. Um, Speaking of Trump, though, we are really starting to see the war of words between Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' chief rival escalate over the past week. What is going on with those two? Yeah, they've spent tens of millions of dollars now on TV ads against each other and on the campaign trail, and they haven't been shy of attacking each other. You know, DeSantis has called uh, Trump's nicknames for him petty and juvenile. He claims that Trump has moved left on immigration and spending. And all this is coming after DeSantis was essentially laying dormant while Trump bludgeoned him on the airwaves. DeSantis also making another really interesting argument that hasn't been heard much from other GOP candidates, and that's that Trump can only serve four more years if he does win. Here was here was Trump's response to that at an event in Iowa. You know, one of our opponents, they were uh, they were out there saying that uh, we can be there eight years and it takes eight years. No, it takes six months to fix it or less. If you have to if you have to rely, if you have to rely on somebody that needs eight years to fix it, then he's the wrong guy. You know, this is really something I've been wondering about. When would Republicans start to attack Trump on the fact that he can only serve four more years, limited to two terms by the 22nd Amendment? You know, if no incumbent runs in 2028, that really puts their party at a disadvantage. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro, thanks so much. You're welcome. Political... Political commentator Mary Trump is best known as an outspoken critic of her uncle, former President Donald Trump, and not so much as an author of love stories. But as NPR's Chloe Veltman reports, that might change now that she's coming out with The Italian Lesson, her first romance novel. Mary Trump says she's never read a romance before, much less written one. 
I am coming at this without any pre-existing notions of what the conventions are, which is partially, I think, why I drive E. Jean up a wall. E. Jean is famed advice columnist E. Jean Carroll, who's been advising Mary Trump on her book. With nearly three decades of experience dispensing relationship advice in her regular column for Elle magazine, Carroll says she's well qualified to help the rookie romance author get hip to the rules of the genre. If Mary ever goes off the rails, I call her horrified and say, and heroin can't act like that. Then I'll ignore her, essentially. Yeah. So far, Trump has only written a few chapters. She plans to self-publish new installments of the book twice a week over the coming year for paying subscribers on Substack. Despite Trump's lack of knowledge of the genre, her book's premise follows familiar romance patterns. It's an American woman, goes to a hill town in Tuscany, opens a cafe, meets this hunk, Trump says her decision to pen a romance grew out of a conversation among friends she met through an online knitting group she joined in 2021. That group not only includes E. Jean Carroll, but also renowned legal scholar and non-fiction book author Jennifer Tubb, who eventually signed on as Trump's editor for the project. Mary's an incredible world builder, but the kind of things that she might leave out is on the first date, she doesn't describe what the heroine is wearing. Trump, Carol and Tarb have all been under the spotlight in recent years for their strong words and actions, especially concerning Donald Trump. Carol, of course, is known for having recently won a civil lawsuit against the former president for sexual abuse and defamation. And both Mary Trump's family memoir, Too Much and Never Enough, and Tarb's book about white-collar crime, Big Dirty Money, are hypercritical of Donald Trump. As such, the fledgling romance novelist says she and her collaborators are relieved to have a project that is about pure escapism. This is a politics-free zone. Sarah Wendell is the co-founder of TrashyBooks.com, one of the longest-running online romance communities. She says this is not the first time that someone with a famous name has written romance. Is the fact that they're famous a selling point? Well, it gets attention, and that is the whole point of marketing a book. But the romance maven questions the notion that this book could ever be non-political. Everything about this concept is political, from the names on the cover to the fact that it's a romance, because romance is political. Who gets to have a happy ending? Whose marriage is legally recognized? Who can be themselves safely? Mary Trump says she's received pushback against her foray into romance from members of her own circle. They worry it might undermine her reputation as a serious political commentator, but she brushes this off. If the thing that's going to bring me down is writing a romance novel, so be it. She says romance isn't fluff. It can be transformational. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Money market funds are traditionally super safe investments and pay out a higher return than what you might get from a regular bank account. But after recent bank failures and debates over the debt ceiling, this huge part of the financial system could be on shaky ground. Waylon Wong and Adrian Ma from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator from Planet Money, explain. Kenichuku Anadu studies financial stability at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. We spoke to him last week, and he wanted us to mention that he's not speaking on behalf of the Fed. He says money market funds were created to give investors better returns than they could get on bank accounts. Back in the 70s, there was a Federal Reserve regulation that capped the interest rates that banks could pay. So in the early 70s, there were two finance guys who were like, what if people could chip in and invest all together in something that paid out more than what banks are offering? 
And this included not just individual investors, but also small businesses that were looking for higher yield than cash options. These two guys came up with the first money market fund. 50 plus years and several trillion dollars later, this industry has grown into a huge piece of financial infrastructure. So here is how money market funds are structured today. They invest in debt like U.S. treasuries, corporate bonds, and municipal bonds. These bonds are also short-term, meaning they typically come due in a matter of months instead of years. And they generally have low risk of default. They're considered safe and boring, therefore making money market funds safe and boring. And the stability of these funds is reflected in how they're priced. So if you want to invest in a money market fund, you do that by buying shares. But unlike a stock price that bounces around, the price for a money market fund is basically $1 per share. So that means that if I invest $1 into a fund, I can expect to receive one share in the fund. And conversely, if I sell my one share, I expect to receive $1. If that level falls below a dollar, it is a sign that something has gone really wrong. There's a name for this called breaking the buck. In September of 2008, a large fund broke the buck due to its holdings of Lehman Brothers' debt. Of course, Lehman Brothers failed. So that Lehman Brothers debt basically just became worthless, right? That's correct. Following this event, investors, you know, likely concerned about losses, redeemed large amounts from their funds. People who were invested in these funds took their money and stampeded towards the exits. When money market funds have to cash out a lot of investors all at once, they can have trouble turning their assets into cash quickly enough. They might have to sell their holdings at a deep discount. When that happens, they've gone from a run to a fire sale. And that is why the Fed specifically mentioned money market funds in a recent report about financial stability. That report said that during periods of financial stress, there's a risk investors will withdraw their money in mass. Things have changed since Lehman collapsed and that one big money market fund broke the buck. Regulators put in safeguards. Certain funds were allowed to temporarily suspend withdrawals or charge investors a fee for taking their money out. And so far, money market funds haven't needed to resort to these measures. Waylon Wong, Adrian Ma, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about five minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll hear about Nike's shoe sale slump, inventory excess, and colorway reliance. Tonight at 7, President Biden's set to address the nation following the bipartisan approval of legislation raising the debt limit. You can hear his remarks live at 7 tonight here on 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Summer semester starts June 5th, semesteroff.com. It's 74 degrees in Boston. Rain is moving through the area in isolated areas. The rain's pretty heavy. A chance of some showers tomorrow with Saturday's highs in the mid-50s. And on Sunday, a chance of showers and temperatures in the upper 50s. This is WBUR. 
WBUR supporters include Nuance. The Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, is designed to automate clinical documentation so physicians can spend more time caring for patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. I'm Tiziana Deering. From news headlines to deeper dives into issues of real consequence, from Morning Edition to All Things Considered, from stories online at WBUR.org to conversations on stage at City Space, everything you get from WBUR depends on a solid foundation of listener support. Help us get to our June fundraiser goal of 700 monthly contributors to keep our journalism strong. No reason to wait. Give at WBUR.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. Finland's NATO membership is just one sign that Russia has failed in its goals in the war in Ukraine. That's the view of Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who says the Russians are making the same mistakes in Ukraine as the Soviets did in the Winter War in Finland. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. In Helsinki City Hall, Secretary Blinken compared Russia's aggression against Ukraine to the 1939 Soviet invasion of Finland. Like President Putin's so-called special operation against Ukraine, the USSR's so-called liberation operation falsely accused Finland of provoking the invasion. Like the Russians with Kyiv, the Soviets were confident that they'd sack Helsinki in weeks. Blinken got some chuckles in the audience when he talked about how Putin's war is backfiring. He said Putin tried to project strength in Ukraine, but instead showed Russia's weaknesses. Kremlin often claimed it had the second strongest military in the world, and many believed it. Today, many see Russia's military as the second strongest in Ukraine. Its equipment, technology, leadership, troops, strategy, tactics, and morale, a case study in failure. The idea of the speech was to show that NATO is stronger now and committed to helping Ukraine build up its defenses for the long haul. The Secretary of State was also trying to reassure countries in the global south that the U.S. will support peace efforts as long as any deal doesn't require Ukraine to give up territory now occupied by Russia. He didn't mention that Finland had to give up territory to the Soviet Union to end the Winter War. We'll support efforts, whether by Brazil, by China, or any other nation if they help find a way to adjust in lasting peace, consistent with the principles of the United Nations Charter. Here in Washington, the Biden administration was raising alarms about Russia's nuclear saber rattling. Moscow has taken steps in recent days to move tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus. It has suspended its participation in the New START Treaty, the only agreement that caps the U.S. and Russian nuclear arsenals. Russia's actions have been dealing body blows to the post-Cold War nuclear arms control framework. That's National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan speaking to arms control experts today. The Biden administration has just scaled back its information-sharing arrangements under the new START treaty, but Sullivan says the U.S. will stick to the limits set by the treaty, if Russia does, and it's ready to talk about what comes after it expires in 2026. And rather than waiting to resolve all of our bilateral differences, the United States is ready to engage Russia now to manage nuclear risks and develop a post-2026 arms control framework. We are prepared to enter into those discussions. Arms control experts don't see any signs that Russia would be willing to discuss that now. The U.S. also wants to talk to China about its nuclear arsenal, but Sullivan says Beijing won't even come to the table. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. 
between the shelves full of unsold product, last week's senior leadership shakeup, and a lot of the same old models being offered again, just in different colorways, industry insiders are not so bullish these days on Nike. Have we hit peak Nike, writes Chris Burns. He's a footwear business analyst, and he also runs a sneaker resale platform on his website, which is called Arch. So we asked him to explain. Chris, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you guys for inviting me. All right, Chris, let's just start with the clarification here. Nike is still the big name in the sneaker market. I mean, there's a big movie that just came out about the creation of the Air Jordan. What leads you to raise this question if the company is post-peak? Nike is so big and so powerful in the sneaker industry that me saying peak isn't the same thing as saying a smaller company just lost a great share of the marketplace. But for Nike, who's hopefully trying to hit $50 billion a year, it seems that Nike has finally maxed out its potential. In my view, COVID was such a disruption. Nike is now in a place where demand and supply are even. Nike itself, when you walk into the stores, the Nike wall is just cluttered where a shelf used to have one shoe turned to the side where you could see it really well. There's three or four shoes on one shelf at a time. So it's just cluttered. You walk into a Foot Locker and there are boxes inside of the store space in some instances because there's so much inventory. One of the things I'm wondering is, is this a situation in which we just saw Nike release a whole lot of retro shoes and new different colorways that just in some ways oversaturated the market? So in the last six years since 2017 there's what i call a three to five year window to see what's really happening with the brand Hmm. for nike that 2017 changed the direction of the company they grew nike was opening stores but they introduced a program called edit to amplify edit to amplify made nike focus on the product that was selling the best and in the process of focusing on the product that was selling the best air jordan one Nike Dunk, Nike Blazer, they began to make those shoes in a lot of different colorways. Mm -hmm. But the problem was they were no longer innovating. Nike used to be revolutionary. In the last few years, though, it's just Dunks, Jordans, Air Force Ones. Yep. That doesn't mean that it's not selling. They're still selling, but it doesn't have the same brand heat. Mm -hmm. It doesn't create the type of emotion that it used to. So this is not the first time in recent history that you and other analysts have seen Nike undergoing a bit of, say, a slump. Tell us about what happened the last time. The last time the slump took place, it's 2014, 2015, and Nike rolled out a lot of product. They uh, produced too many Jordan brand shoes. They flooded the market. At the exact same time that Nike kind of flooded the market, Adidas started to rise. They signed Kanye West. So Adidas was on the rise. Nike was just kind of coasting. It seemed that Nike was going to pick up steam, but they didn't have any newness or research and development that was happening. In 2017, they offset the lack of newness in the scale of sport. So the scale of sport introduced Nike React, Air Max 270, and 360-degree fly net. So Nike was kind of flatlining. From 2014 to 2016 and then 2017, they were able to kind of turn the corner and they fixed that problem. 
this time it's a little bit different and I don't think it's going to be fixed this time around. What do you expect that the response will be from Nike? What do you think the company's next move is going to be? I don't know if they have a move to make. At that scale of sport, there were 10 speakers on that day. Five of those people are gone. There's a talent drain at Nike. In the last year, those tech people are gone. Those data people are gone. I think Nike has to focus on inventory so much that they can't innovate. I think they're operating off of legacy more than they are off of controlling everything the way they used to. Footwear analyst Chris Burns, his website is called Arch. Hey, thank you. Oh, no problem. Thank you. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive commercial auto insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks at ProgressiveCommercial.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at MattressFirm.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. Coming up in a few minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll get the story from New Orleans where churches and community centers have created community lighthouses to help after hurricanes. Take note, tomorrow in Boston, it should be quite a scene in the Seaport District. Elite divers will propel themselves off the roof of the Institute of Contemporary Art, diving nearly 90 feet into the harbor. It's part of the Red Bull Cliff Diving World Series. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Long Hill in Beverly and Stevens Coolidge in North Andover. Revitalize North Shore public gardens and historic homes. Information at thetrustees.org slash gardens dash revitalized. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The head of a Massachusetts business group says employers should not have to pay for a multi-billion dollar mistake by the state regarding unemployment benefits. They're they're sitting on the rainy day fund. I think Beacon Hill needs to pay off this debt. It is Friday, June 2nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, U.S. employers added far more jobs in May than forecasters had expected. Also, subscribers dislike the Netflix move to roll back password sharing, but some experts say it's a good business decision. What they have to be worried about is a challenging ad market, the decline of pay TV, the rising cost of sports, and a writer's strike. And tonight at 7, President Biden is set to address the nation about the approval of legislation raising the debt limit. You can hear his remarks live at 7 here on WBUR. It's 6.01. News is next.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Joe Biden is set to address the nation from the Oval Office tonight after the successful passage in both the House and Senate of a deal that would suspend the debt ceiling at least through the election. The temporary hold came as the country's $31.4 trillion borrowing limit was in danger of expiring, potentially sending the U.S. into a first-ever default. The deal approved in Congress lifts the debt ceiling through 2025. Biden is due to speak at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Today marks a month since film and TV writers went on strike against the Hollywood studios. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports morale remains high. There's energy and enthusiasm on the picket lines outside Hollywood studios. Teresa Wong, who stopped working on a Netflix show, organized a special K-pop-themed picket outside Universal. One month in, we're still going strong. Our passion has not decreased. And gearing up to head into this summer to keep striking until we get a fair deal. Actors, Teamsters, Hollywood production workers and others have joined striking writers on the lines. The Writers Guild of America sent letters to studio investors asking them to reject pay packages for top executives, something Netflix shareholders did this week. Meanwhile, the Directors Guild of America continues negotiating with the major studios and actors in SAG-AFTRA are set to begin their contract talks next week. Mandalit Del Barco, NPR News, Hollywood. SAG-AFTRA represents many NPR newsroom employees. Justice Department officials have informed former Vice President Mike Pence's legal team it will not pursue criminal charges related to the discovery of classified documents at his Indiana home. The announcement coming in a letter sent to Pence's lawyers. The news comes days before Pence plans to formally launch campaign for the Republican presidential nomination, putting him in direct conflict with his former boss, Donald Trump. Wall Street ended the week on a high note. Stocks surged on the heels of a jobs report that far exceeded expectations. The Dow up more than 2 percent. The S&P rose nearly 1.5 percent. NPR's David Gurr reports markets welcomed a resolution to the standoff over the debt limit. There was already relief on Wall Street. After Congress passed a deal, President Biden is expected to sign into law on Saturday to suspend the debt limit. With a default off the table, investors turned their attention to the labor market, which is still very strong. In May, the U.S. economy added 339,000 jobs. That's almost 150,000 more than forecast. And the unemployment rate rose to 3.7 percent. Wall Street expects that when the Federal Reserve meets later this month, policymakers will opt to pause to keep interest rates where they are. But the latest data may complicate their decision-making. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Taking a look at the numbers, the Dow rose 701 points today to close at 33,762. The Nasdaq was up 139 points. The S&P gained 61 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey are explaining why they voted against the debt ceiling bill that passed the Senate. Markey primarily objects to the cuts in social service programs. Warren is especially critical of the rollback of student debt relief. Coming up at 7 this evening, WBUR brings you President Biden's national address on the debt ceiling compromise. The head of a Massachusetts business group says there's no way employers should have to pay for a multi-billion dollar mistake by the state. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports. In 2020, Massachusetts used $2.5 billion in federal pandemic relief money to pay for unemployment benefits. It turns out state funds should have been used to pay those claims. John Hurst is president of the Retailers Association of Massachusetts. He says the state already has the ability to pay the federal government back, including leftover money from the American Rescue Plan Act and other funds. 
leftover money from last year's fiscal year. They're sitting on the rainy day fund. You know, this is a one-time investment. I think Beacon Hill needs to pay off this debt. The state's costly error was uncovered in an audit and made public this week. The state labor department has been under scrutiny for years for its loose financial controls. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. More than 400 students in Somerville were barred from their school today after the building was deemed unsafe. A piece of concrete fell in a stairwell inside the Winter Hill Community School while the building was empty last weekend. WBUR's Max Larkin reports it is far from the first sign of trouble at the building. At school committee meetings this spring, Winter Hill parents and educators raised alarms about mouse droppings, crumbling walls, and 90-degree heat inside the school. But the idea of plunging concrete especially unnerves Angelina Schultz, whose son attends kindergarten there. You know, the first thing when I got that phone call, well, one, my God, what happened if that had fallen on my child or another child? And Two, should I be sending him to this school? Somerville Mayor Katiana Ballantyne told parents Friday that her top priority is making the school safe, but offered no timeline for when it might reopen. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts is easing some of its rules for members affected by this week's closure of Compass Medical Practices. The insurer says it's easing referral and authorization requirements for customers who were seeing Compass doctors. Quincy-based Compass Medical announced Wednesday it was immediately closing all six of its Massachusetts offices. Rain is moving through the area. In isolated areas, the rain is heavy. In Boston tomorrow, a chance of some showers with highs in the mid-50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. In a little bit, we'll hear about why it may be time to notify your mother or your brother or your ex that Netflix is going to put an end to sharing passwords. But first, news about the U.S. jobs market. This morning, we learned that employers added 339,000 jobs last month, and revised figures show hiring in March and April was also stronger than had been reported. That is good news for anyone who's looking for work, But the strength of the job market could also complicate the Federal Reserve's effort to bring down inflation. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Hi, Scott. Hi, Juana. All right, Scott. Employers' appetite for workers just continues to defy expectations month after month. Where are all of these new jobs coming from? Yeah, pretty much across the board. Uh, we added lots of jobs last month in healthcare and business services and bars and restaurants. Even construction companies are hiring, even the, despite the high interest rates, which have really weighed on the housing market. You know, just about every month, forecasters think we're going to see a slowdown in hiring, and then the number comes out and they just shake their heads. Ryan Sweet is chief U.S. economist at Oxford Economics. The labor market's red hot, and you know, heading into the summer, you know, there's no indication that it was cooling off. By almost every metric that you look at when you're assessing the health of the labor market, it is strong. It's rock solid. Just about the only industries that lost workers last month were manufacturing, where we saw a small decline, and information, which is a catch-all category that includes software firms and media companies. Overall, though, the jobs engine just keeps chugging along. And Scott, are employers able to find the workers that they need? 
it certainly seems like it. You're not hearing the kind of widespread complaints about worker shortages that you used to. Uh, payrolls in most industries are now at least back to where they were before the pandemic, so there's not the mad scramble there was when everybody was trying to staff up at once. We're also seeing more workers coming off the sidelines and joining the labor force. Uh, that's especially true for people in their prime working years, 25 to 54. The share of people in that age group who are now working or looking for work is the highest it's been since 2007. And for women in that age group, it's the highest ever. Uh, that's a real turnaround from the depths of the pandemic when a lot of women left the workforce and there were concerns they might not come back. They are coming back. And Sweet thinks the ranks of working women is going to continue to grow. We have a, a large pipeline of, of women that are going to enter the labor force because if you look at the, the share of women versus men that you know, are attending college, you know, that would argue that we're going to see more and more women coming into the labor force going forward. And I think that's a very good sign for the broader economy. We've also seen a rebound in immigration, which had largely dried up during the pandemic, and that's another important source of workers. As good as all of that sounds, we should also point out that the unemployment rate did tick up last month. What should we make of that? Yeah, the unemployment rate had been just 3.4 percent, matching uh, the lowest it's been in half a century. And last month it crept up to 3.7 percent. Now, that's still very low by historical standards, but it's a pretty big one-month increase. Uh, what's more, the unemployment rate for African Americans, would ha which had fallen to a record low, jumped by almost a full percentage point. So that's not good. Now, the unemployment rate comes from a separate survey of households, which is smaller and can bounce around a lot. So I wouldn't make too much from one month's data, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on. And lastly, how will the Fed respond to this? Well, the Fed's been raising interest rates really aggressively in an effort to curb inflation, and this is going to be one more thing for the Fed to consider as it tries to decide whether to raise rates again uh, when policymakers meet in a couple of months. Right now, though, uh, the Fed's expected to leave rates unchanged. Uh, the stock market liked that. The Dow jumped nearly seven, just over 700 points today. All right. NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. Cities across the country are looking at how to help residents through extreme weather brought on by human-caused climate change. In New Orleans, neighbors are coming together to open up places that can operate off the grid after hurricanes. Hallie Parker with member station WWNO takes us to one of the first so-called community lighthouses. Somebody shout amen. amen. This is a typical Sunday morning at Broadmoor Community Church in New Orleans. So welcome to Broadmoor. With no perfect people are allowed. Amen. That's the church's pastor, Gregory Manning. This multi-ethnic church has served the surrounding neighborhood for nearly a century, whether you worship there or not. Now, it's been transformed into a community lighthouse, a place residents can come after a hurricane. Manning says a coalition of nonprofits wants to build more of these community lighthouses. Hopefully in the very near future, there's 86 community lighthouses with power all over the city. So we are uniquely set up to respond as quickly as possible. These 86 lighthouses will be equipped with solar panels and batteries to store the energy produced. The idea came from necessity. Manning had to evacuate to Houston after Hurricane Ida in 2021. He says people still in New Orleans kept calling him, asking for help during the deadly blackout and heat that followed. The city was putting people on buses to remain cool. And I had so many people calling me saying, Pastor, help us find a bus that we can get on to be kept cool. Now, Manning can tell them to go to the church. After a storm, it can house 150 people. There are four large batteries outside to store power, and... Above us, the entire roof is covered with solar panels. 
The building can run off the grid for at least a day on just battery power. Inside, there's more than a dozen enormous refrigerators and freezers, enough to house 10,000 pounds of food per week. When the lighthouse opened earlier this year, the community gathered to celebrate with a party and a march around the block. The whole time, the church ran off solar energy. Manning's church and each new community lighthouse will also provide a cool place for people to get out of the heat, store medicine, and loan out portable batteries to charge devices. It's the smallest things that are important. There is so much that you just don't think about. Sonia St. Cyr is a longtime volunteer with the church's food pantry, and she lives three blocks from the Broadmoor Church. She has multiple sclerosis, and her electric wheelchair is her lifeline. So long power outages can leave her stranded, but not anymore. Even if there is no power in the city, I can still function to come here for however long in the day to recharge my chair. This church, along with the other community lighthouses, fit into New Orleans' larger plan to help the city withstand extreme weather. It's a plan that Austin Feldbaum helps implement. He's in charge of preparing the city for all kinds of hazards. After Hurricane Ida, Feldbaum says New Orleans opened pop-up sites at recreation centers and fire stations to help people. It was instrumental in saving lives and preventing heat-related illnesses and things like that. Feldbaum says his office is also working with Manning's Church and other nonprofits to build a network of volunteers. People from the neighborhood who can fan out and help those who can't leave on their own, like St. Cyr. We really depend on folks in the community for that work. You have an understanding of what's going on, and we need that information to make its way up. For Manning, the volunteer network has the potential to close some of those gaps in response. You got people with million-dollar homes who most likely are going to evacuate. We are responding to those that we know cannot get out. Manning and the Coalition of Nonprofits have the money to build out 24 community lighthouses across the state over the next two years. They need another $11 million to get all 86 running. So far, three have opened, just in time for this year's hurricane season. For NPR News, I'm Hallie Parker in New Orleans. Here's a sound that may soon be a memory for millions of people. Netflix plans to end password sharing. And as NPR's Netta Ulibi reports, many fans feel betrayed. It's going to be like that scene in Netflix's Stranger Things when the heroes are trying to break into a top-secret facility. Give me the code. Your Netflix code or password is going to fail. The code is wrong. There will be havoc. There will be recriminatory phone calls. I I suppose it could be wrong. How could it be wrong? The code is a number, a famous number. But the only number that matters to Netflix is 100 million people. That's how many of us around the world are not paying but watching Netflix anyway. Among them are three people beloved by Michael O'Connor of Ireland. He shares his Netflix password with his mom, his sister, and his partner. 
My first response was, I'm probably going to cancel my account. O'Connor was already irritated with Netflix. First, he says it's way more expensive than the other streamers if you're paying for the ad-free tiers. Second, Netflix has a habit of canceling his favorite shows. The OA, Warrior Non, oh, The Dark Crystal was really, it's really bad business. I see many endings lay before us. Previous password sharers will set up their own accounts, predicts Stephen Cahall. He's an analyst for Wells Fargo Securities. The pool, he says, of brand new subscribers has shrunk. And remember, this is not easy for Netflix either. Streaming services actually don't love to crack down on password sharing. They like people engaging with the content. He says, try to see things from the point of view of Netflix and their shareholders. What they have to be worried about is a challenging ad market, a rising cost of capital, the decline of pay TV, the rising cost of sports, the slowdown of streaming and a writer's strike. Do not be shocked, Cahill says, if other streaming services follow suit. But we may be losing something culturally meaningful, says Jessica Hallam. She's 51 with a good job, but she uses her parents' password for HBO, uh, I mean, sorry, Max. I do not need their financial support, but there's something about the gift. Every time I log in to watch something, knowing that my parents are paying for it, I, there's just something really sweet about it, right? Just ask Carrie Bradshaw. As soon as I typed in love, there he was. It's not uncommon for people to share passwords with their exes. A little intimacy and access into the life of someone you love. Meanwhile, our Irishman, Michael O'Connor, says the whole situation might drive him back to reading. <laughs> the books are usually better anyway. And cost nothing to give away. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 618. Coming up at 7, President Biden is set to address the nation following the bipartisan approval of legislation that raises the debt limit. You can hear his remarks live at 7 here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU School of Social Work. Top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. BU.edu slash SSW. On Wall Street today, the Dow gained 2.1 percent. The S&P was up just under one and a half percent. The Nasdaq closed the day up just over one percent. In local business news, North End restaurant owners are withdrawing their lawsuit against the city of Boston over outdoor dining. The owners had sued, claiming that Mayor Wu was applying restrictions unfairly to the largely Italian-American businesses. The suit had sought one and a half million dollars in damages for each of the four restaurant owners, A spokesman in the mayor's office says the charges in the lawsuit were without merit and the plaintiffs were right to abandon it. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. It's 79 degrees in Boston, some rain moving through the area. In isolated areas, the rain is heavy. Tomorrow, a chance of some showers. Saturday's highs in the mid-50s. Sunday, a chance of showers. Temperatures in the upper 50s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty. On stage now through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. 
Tickets at bostonballet.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. We're going to take you to a bookstore in Baltimore called Charm City Books. Tall shelves are jammed full of books inside a narrow, converted four-story row house, and a big white and gray dog named Lou plods across the hardwood floors, introducing himself to everyone who walks through the door. We visited this bookstore back in February because we wanted to understand why sales of romance novels have boomed, and a group of incredibly dedicated readers helped us understand why. Hi, everybody. I'm Alyssa. I'm one of the book sluts co-leads. I want to thank you all for coming. This is such a great show out for our first in-person research of the Romance Book Club. That was Um, Alyssa Foley. She leads this book group. Readers' books and hands stretch from the front of the store all the way to the back where there's a charcuterie spread set up along with chocolates, boxed wine, and seltzer. Some people here, like Foley, have been reading romance for years, but others? So how many people is romance a new genre for them? They're exploring. Yes. Yes. Lifting proudly in the air. (laughs) We love that. Demand for romance novels is booming in the U.S., with sales of print copies surging about 52% in the year 2022, even as book sales saw a decline. That's according to Publishers Weekly. It's also something Davin Ralston has seen. She owns Charm City Books with her husband, Joe Carlson. You know, when we first started in 2019, I was like really raring to do a romance book club and have a romance section because so many bookstores don't have a romance section. And so I wanted to be really proud of it because I felt like it was important to have that representation. And for the women who may feel nervous or or made to feel ashamed of wanting to read this type of literature. I wanted it to be like very prominent in the store. And at first, you know, there wasn't a lot of interest. Honestly, at our first romance book swap, Alyssa is the only one who showed up with her husband. And so it was me and my husband and her and her husband. What was that like? Um, It was, so at first I was like, oh man, but like we actually hit it off. So now we're very good friends. It's definitely had its ups and downs, but The number of people who come in buying romance books has just like dramatically increased. And the books that people get most excited about, they'll be pre-ordering them very far in advance. Okay, so I do have to ask, who is responsible for the name of this book group? Oh my gosh. (laughs) So it's actually a funny story. I started with the book club name the Telltale Hearts, because I was like, oh, we're next to the Poe house. But on a walk with her brother. He's like, you should just name it Book Sluts. <laughs> and I was like, what? No, I could not do that. As she thought about it, though, the name grew on her. And I was like, you know what? Why not? Because there is that stigma around the word slut as well. So I was like, I feel like if we sort of lean into that, it's a really great way to show, like, we're just not ashamed of liking to read smut. Later, Alyssa and Davin started handing out these white and pink romance-themed bingo cards with little graphics of hearts all over them. Each square on the card featured one of the genre's most loved or most loathed tropes. Alyssa called them out one by one. Let's go for enemies to lovers. I bingo! bingo! Okay, enemies to lovers. Single parent, paranormal, free space, and secret And when it comes to selling romance readers on a book, especially online, tropes are a big deal. 
Here's Alyssa Foley again. They're a shorthand for what sort of happens in different types of stories. Things like faded mates. Marriage of convenience is one of my favorite. Forced proximity. Um, I do a lot of Instagram romance book talk stuff. Oh, um, book talk, yes. And you can easily like tag the book as this and everybody knows what it means. Romance reader Antoinette Morales says she has a bunch of favorites. I like enemies to lovers. I like meet cutes. I like fake dating. Like, oh, we have to pretend we're dating because we're going to my ex's wedding and I don't want him to know I'm lonely. I just want people to get together. I don't really care how they do it. I just, happy people loving each other. It's my favorite. (laughs) She grew up writing fan fiction, which led her to romance novels. I think this world does such a good job of telling us why we're not good enough. And finding love tells you that even if you're a little bit broken, you are good enough, if not for somebody else, then for yourself. And I think romance has a way of, like, filling in the cracks in yourself, sometimes with another person and sometimes with, you know, a platonic friendship and sometimes with yourself. And that's really important to me. Morales was one of several readers who pointed out the slowly increasing diversity within the genre. I jump for joy when I'm reading a book and there's a female protagonist and she wraps her hair at night. Like, that makes my heart sing because it's like, oh my gosh, that's me. I get my bonnet and I put it on and then I open my book. I don't exclusively read books for people of color, women of color, but it is nice to look on a bookshelf and see it and know that it's there. It's out in the open. It's not sequestered in its own little dark corner of the bookstore. At this book club meeting, everyone was invited to bring along a favorite book to swap with someone else. The book stacked high on a square card table near the front of the store. Morales added an Allie Hazelwood book to the collection. I brought The Love Hypothesis here because I love that book. And that book was also started as fan fiction. And that book wound up in Nakara Campbell's hands. I think it's about like the scientist PhD candidate who's like trying to find love. I'm not entirely sure, but I've heard roaring reviews and I'm here for it. How did you get into reading romance books? So by accident. I actually started off with Jasmine Guillory. One, because she always showcases like black women and them being the most desired. Also, it's not like your traditional cookie cutter, like slim or whatever. She always features like either full size women, women who are wearing their natural hair. And I'm like, yep, I'm sold. I love it here. Okay, so I'm learning that everybody kind of has their favorite kind of tropes or subgenres. What are some of yours? <sighs> Powerful women uh, who are trying to find love. Uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's enough. the girl. That's the girl. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think people who shy away from romance books for whatever reason, what do they miss by steering clear? Just being vulnerable, I think. Nobody really wants to believe they want to fall in love. Like we've been so like tough and we all deserve love and that's okay. Like, just be open, be open to love. Very personal question. Yeah. How much money do you spend on books? It sounds like you read a ton. <clears throat> My boyfriend is here, so <laughs> he's right there. Okay, he can't hear me. Um, it's probably like in the, like, I probably spend at least a thousand a year, maybe more. The publishing industry has readers like these to thank for the surging sales of romance books, so we asked them for recommendations. This one book kept coming up. Adelati Ekwesi's book, You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty. And as soon as Alyssa Foley said it, 
everyone around her started nodding. You made a fool of death with your beauty. Every single time. Ooh, that thing is spicy. I'm still sweating. Like, I'm fanning myself thinking about that book. That book is... Woo. Okay, so put it on the spice meter for me. Where are we on the dial? Ooh, 12. Out of 10? Mm-hmm. Ooh. Oh, my. And this piece ends with its own love story. Since we visited that bookstore back in February, Nakara Campbell's boyfriend has become her fiancé. Congratulations, you two. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 629 and at 7, WBUR brings you an address by President Biden following the approval of legislation raising the debt limit. As you're out and about this spring and summer, tap and listen to WBUR wherever you go. Listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download or update the WBUR app now. With a weekend upon us, keep in mind some of your listening options are changing here on WBUR. For example, you'll get a second chance to hear Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on Sunday mornings, and you can catch the Moth Radio Hour on Saturday evenings. You can check the details of your new weekend soundtrack at WBUR.org schedule. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th. SemesterOff.com.